we read this, notice how the theme of kingship develops through these chapters. Isaiah chapter 32. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the rash will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. For the fool speaks folly, his mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord. The hungry he leaves empty, and from the thirsty he withholds water. The scoundrel's methods are wicked. He makes up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. But the noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. You women who are so complacent, rise up and listen to me. You daughters who feel secure, hear what I have to say. In a little more than a year, you, will feel secu- you who feel secure will tremble. The grape harvest will fail, and the harvest of fruit will not come. Tremble, you complacent women. Shudder, you daughters who feel secure. Strip off your clothes, put sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vines, and for the land of my people. A land overgrown with thorns and briars. Yes, mourn for all houses of merriment, and for this city of revelry. The fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted. Citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever, the delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks. Till the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. Justice will dwell in the desert, and righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Though hail flattens the forest and the city is leveled completely, how blessed you will be, sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. Woe to you, O destroyer, You who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, O traitor. You who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. O Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. At the thunder of your voice, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. Your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts. Like a swarm of locusts, men pounce on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your time, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. 
The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Look, their brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways are deserted. No travelers are on the roads. The treaty is broken. Its witnesses are despised. No one is respected. The land mourns and wastes away. Lebanon is ashamed and withers. Sharon is like the Arabah, and Bashan and Carmel drop their leaves. Now will I arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I be lifted up. You conceive chaff, you give birth to straw. Your breath is a fire that consumes you. The peoples will be burned as if to lime, like cut thorn bushes. They will be set ablaze. You who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my power. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? He who walks righteously and speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. This is the man who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. His bread will be supplied and water will not fail him. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. In your thoughts you will ponder the former terror. Where is that chief officer? Where is the one who took the revenue? Where is the officer in charge of the towers? You will see those arrogant people no more. Those people of an obscure speech with their strange incomprehensible tongue. Look upon Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its ropes broken. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them. No mighty ship will sail them. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Your rigging hangs loose. The mast is not held secure. The sail is not spread. Then an abundance of spoils will be divided and even the lame will carry off plunder. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill. And the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. This is God's word. It will help you to keep this open in front of you. It's uh, quite a complex section. And I'm going to try and work us through it this morning. But do you notice how it begins and ends with this theme of kingship? Verse 1 of chapter 32, See a king will reign in righteousness. And then at the end of chapter 33, verse 22, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. And most of these chapters are kind of looking forward to a a future, an ideal situation, a dawning of a new age, in fact. Because what he was, the time he was declaring these prophecies was a time when things were far from ideal, far from encouraging. And I think it helps us to locate these verses in their original historical context before we think about applying them to us. And so you might want to keep your finger in Isaiah and then turn back to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18. 
Paul told Timothy to devote himself to reading scripture. So that's why we're spending a lot of time reading scripture this morning. But 2 Kings chapter 18, uh, verses uh, 13 to 15. You'll find that on page 390. If you're unfamiliar uh, where to find that, page 390 in the Pew Bibles. And it's worth saying before we read this that, uh, you know, the, of course, when we come to the Bible, we're not talking about myth. We're not talking about um, sort of spiritual fables. We're talking about real history, real events. Uh, King Hezekiah was the, uh, the leader of this tiny nation of Judah, and he decided to rebel against the superpower Assyria. You see on that map, that green area, that was the extent of the Assyrian Empire uh, that spread through that whole area in that 8th century uh, before Christ. And uh, for some reason, Hezekiah thought it was smart to rebel against this mighty king, Sennacherib. Sennacherib wasn't happy, and so he eventually invaded into Judah and captured the city of Lachish in 701 BC. And he plundered all its goods and took people off as slaves. And um, in fact, the Assyrian king was so chuffed about this campaign that he had this campaign chiseled on the walls of one of his temples in the capital city of Nineveh. And next time you're in London, if you go to the British Museum, one of the greatest treasures in London is the British Museum, you can actually see this very uh, relief. We chipped it off the walls in Nineveh and we kept it safe in London. Isn't that nice? And you can see this bragging that the king did of this campaign. Uh, and there it is on the right. You can actually touch it if no one's looking. So the Bible is talking about real historical events. These chapters are rooted in the real events of history. And as, as King Hezekiah saw the devastating impact of his choices, as he saw one of his key cities, Lachish, being utterly destroyed, he changes his mind. So look at verse 13 of 2 Kings chapter 18. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me and I'll pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. It was an absolutely humiliating climb down. Uh, he had refused to pay tribute, and in the end, he had to pay a lot more money to try and buy off uh, King Sennacherib. But Sennacherib still wasn't happy with all he got. He took the money and then he still marched on Jerusalem and surrounded it. So turn back to Isaiah chapter 32. That is the, the context that we're dealing with. So have a look at uh, chapter 33 and verse 7. Look, their brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly the highways are deserted no traveler are on the roads the treaty is broken its witnesses despised no one is respected the land mourns and wastes away so when your war heroes are crying 
and your peace envoys are weeping bitterly, you know things are not going well. That you know that all human leadership has been found wanting. It's empty and useless. Hezekiah had made some duff moves and he finally had to strip all that money and still the king was coming against them. All their treaties had come to nothing. And that's the original context in which Isaiah was speaking into the, the context of the utter failure of human leadership. So I want us to remember as we look at these chapters, even though they might seem a bit foreign and strange to us, that God calls on us to trust him in the real events of our lives. Isaiah is speaking into the real events of Hezekiah's life. Now this morning we're not worried about the Assyrian Empire. It is no more. But I'm sure we are here today with people who've got various concerns and fears and anxieties that threaten us in our lives or threaten the churches that we're part of, or that we're anxious for this church. And the same question comes to us in our challenges. Who will we trust? Who will we lean on in the mess of our lives? Who will we look to for solutions, for protection, for salvation? Now Isaiah has already called on them in the, in the chapters we've looked at earlier to repent of their human plans, of their false plans that they have made. And here in these chapters, uh, he turns from repentance to the theme of trust. He wants them to see all that could be theirs if they will trust God's solution. And so he draws their eyes in chapter 32 to seeing God's king. See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. He's getting them to take their eyes off their present circumstances and to look ahead and see a different future with a different king who's going to reign in righteousness. Now, it sounds a lot like the king that he's already told us about back in chapter 11. The, uh, the, the one who's going to come in the line of David, who will establish a perfect government. This Messiah king who will be a, a divinely empowered ruler. Uh, as it says in chapter 33, verse 17, uh, there's a day coming when your eyes will see the king in his beauty. There's a day coming where they're going to see this king. And yet, if you look at uh, verse 22 of chapter 33, we're told that the Lord is our king. And I think in this chapter is a mystery that uh, must have caused Isaiah to ponder. How do these two things go together? How can you have a human king in the line of David, who you're going to see with your eyes, but who is also God? How is that on earth going to come together? But here is the future that Isaiah points them to. Back at chapter 32, a king who will reign in righteousness, rulers who will rule with justice. Each man will be like a shelter from the wind. A refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Now here's where they should be placing their trust in this promised Messiah King. Uh, this King who will be to them like a shelter, a protection, someone who's going to sustain them. And his kingdom will have leaders in it who will rule with justice. And under this righteous rule, people will start being responsive to the word of God. Up to now, they've been so unresponsive to all that Isaiah has said. But a day is coming when they will be responsive. Verse 3. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed. And the ears of those who hear will listen. 
The mind of the rash will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel highly respected. Now remember, the fool in the Bible is not about your educational achievements. It's not whether you get an A at hires or an E. It's not about that. It's about uh, whether you acknowledge God, whether you fear God. The fool does not acknowledge God. So when the fool is in charge, then ungodliness and error spreads. And we're living in a culture that increasingly is marginalizing and rejecting the Bible. And so when we see that, we shouldn't be surprised then when we see uh, a loss of moral compass uh, in our banks, in our politicians, in our society. The more we reject God's wisdom, then the more we are going to see injustice and unrighteousness, wickedness and evil growing. But when this king is reigning, then fools and rip-off merchants will no longer be in positions of power, fleecing the poor. When this king is acknowledged, then, uh, th- then, then leaders will not abuse their position to line their own pockets, Isaiah says. But instead, there'll be noble people, verse 8, who will have noble plans and noble actions. Now, wouldn't that be great? No more scandals, no more abuses of power, instead righteousness and justice. Isn't that the world that we want? Um, If only there was a king like that, a king who could deliver that. But of course, what Isaiah was pointing forward to, then the apostles testified, was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. He is that righteous king, the one through his death and resurrection uh, will establish, establish the kingdom of God. He is the solution that he is pointing us to here. He's the one that God sent to trust. And that's the sort of kingdom that we are praying for when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And whenever people acknowledge and trust Jesus as God's appointed king and they seek to obey him, they find uh, in the difficulties of their life that he will be their shelter. He will be their refuge. And when they walk through desert experiences, they will find in Christ one who is a shadow from the glare of the sun, one who will be a sustaining water that refreshes. And the more that we as a church seek to obey God's word, then our church life will be an experience of righteousness, refreshment, refuge, and justice. But the great need here is not simply to see God's king, but also to experience God's salvation in verses 9 to 20. The truth was that difficult days were coming for those living in Jerusalem and in Judah. Because they've been so complacent up to now. They've they've refused to listen to Isaiah the prophet. And as always in war, it's not just the men who get hurt, the women get hurt. And so verse 9, he warns these women about their complacency. You women who are so complacent, rise up and listen to me. You daughters who feel secure, hear what I have to say. He's warning them. In in, in less than a year, they're going to see this devastation come upon them as Sennacherib and his army march from Lachish towards Jerusalem. Now Isaiah spends most of his time denouncing male leadership, but the truth is that women always experience the consequences of the men's actions. And so he calls on them to start mourning now, even as people are rejoicing and delighting and saying all is well, start mourning for judgment is coming. We never want to believe that God's judgment is coming, do we? 
We live in a society that just wants to party on, have a good time. No one wants to accept that judgment is coming. And Isaiah calls these women to, uh, to begin that morning now. And, and Isaiah, he's, um, he's looking into the future. And when you look on the horizon, all the mountains look exactly on the same plane. And he's telescoping the future. And he looks to a future where eventually Jerusalem itself would fall, which it would when the Babylonians finally came upon them. Verse 14, the fortress will be abandoned. The noisy city deserted. Citadel and watchtower become a wasteland forever. The delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks. But then he looks beyond that event of desolation to this king who would come and would bring about an amazing thing. He would pour out God's spirit. And when the spirit of God is poured out, everything is changed. Do you notice that in verse 15? Till the spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the desert becomes a fertile field. And the fertile field seems like a forest. Justice will dwell in the desert and righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effects of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Now again, is this not the world that we all want? No deserts, just fertile fields and forests, a land where we experience peace where there's righteousness, a place where people live in safety, where people don't have to uh, lock their doors, where people can walk the streets without fear of being mugged, where there's peace and quiet because people live righteously. It's the world that we all want. Now, I'm glad that people serve as politicians and are willing to make difficult decisions. And if God has given you interest in politics and an opportunity, I'd encourage you uh, if you're as a, to, to get involved in politics. Uh, we need more Christians represented in Holyrood and in the city and in uh, national politics. Uh, but notice here that the Bible says that such a righteous, peaceful world, it does not come about by mere human efforts. It doesn't come about by better education or scientific discovery or because of a particular party or ideology is going to fix everything. No, this world of flourishing and of righteousness only comes when God king god's king comes and when god's king pours out his spirit what we need to experience is this gift of god's holy spirit we need more than just a few moral improvements we need to be made brand new people and it was to one of the best of men a religious upstanding man like nicodemus that remember jesus said these words you must be born Again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of righteousness, unless you are born again or born from above. See, our fundamental problem today is not about whether we're governed by Westminster or Holyrood. It's, it's, it's that we have sinful hearts and we need uh, God to uh, give us brand new hearts. Our sinful hearts are so prone to wickedness and evil and we need brand new hearts changed by God's Holy Spirit. That's our great need in Scotland. It's for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through which we receive the Spirit. Nicodemus was confused. And so Jesus explains again, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see, the world that we all want 
is experienced first at a personal and individual level as we hear the good news about Jesus and we put our trust in him. And it's the Spirit of God who enables and empowers this change in our lives. Uh, it was read to us earlier from Acts chapter 2, wasn't it? The day of Pentecost, um, where God's Spirit was poured out after uh, Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. And Peter explained it all to the crowds who were mystified at all these people who were speaking different languages in front of them. And he said this, God raised this Jesus to life and we are witnesses of the fact. Exalted at the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel and let all Edinburgh be assured of this, didn't have Edinburgh in the text, I added that. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when people heard that, they were cut to the heart and they said, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how you access the Spirit? Repent and be baptized, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you'll receive forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Spirit. So here's the key question this morning. Have you seen this king for yourself? Have you seen in Jesus the king that God has promised, the king who pours out the Spirit? Have you experienced this new birth that this king came to give, this salvation that he offers through his life, death, and resurrection. If you put your trust in him, that is the most fundamental thing that we need. I want you to stand up for a moment. Sit down. You just look too sleepy. It's too hot in here, isn't it? I should have just done John 3.16 today, shouldn't I? Now, as you stood up and got down, there was a rush of blood to your head. And you might have just thought a question. You might have just thought to yourself, hang on, that's very interesting. Um, But if Isaiah is promising this great king that's coming, and they were 700 years before it's coming, how is that of any use to them? What's the point of that? How does that help them? What's the value of trusting God's promise in 700 BC when the promise is about a king who's coming so many years away? And I think that's where chapter 33 comes in. For the God who promises to act in the future is a God who can be trusted to work in the events of our lives now. The reason we're studying this chapter is not because we're fascinated by the history of the 8th century. It's because the God who acted then is the same God who, who is exactly the same person in his being who wants to be at work in our lives now. That's why we're looking at this, these chapters And uh, Isaiah wants them to know that uh, trusting God would have impact for them in their lives at their time. Uh, And and, and, it will come through daily depending on God their king. Now, this section of Isaiah is is a little mini-section from Isaiah 28 to 33. There's been, uh, so far, five woes. Isaiah's pronounced woe, and those woes, these warnings, have been for Judah. But in chapter 33, it's the final woe, and this woe, the change is, it's not at Judah, it's at their enemies. It's directed towards, in fact, Assyria. 
33 verse 1. Woe to you, O destroyer, you who have been destroyed. Woe to you, O traitor, you who have been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. Now this is directed totally against Assyria, who had taken the gold and silver from Hezekiah, but still came to uh, conquer Jerusalem. And yet at the final moment, when the Assyrian army are encamped around Jerusalem, God is going to act against them. Come back in the coming weeks, you're going to see more about this. But this destructive army that's going to come against Jerusalem will itself be destroyed. And this treacherous traitor king, Sennacherib, would be betrayed. Both history and Isaiah record that when Sennacherib finally returned to Nineveh, his own sons murdered him. But why is this change of tone? Why is the woe move from the people of Judah to their enemies? Well, I think it's because of verse 2. It seems to me that at their most desperate moment, the people finally started listening and finally started doing what Isaiah was preaching. Verse 2. O Lord, they pray, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning. Our salvation in time of distress. All their plans, all their strategies have come to nothing and emptiness and they realize they've got nothing else and they throw themselves on God. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. This is exactly what Isaiah has been urging them to do. To wait upon the Lord. To stop these attempts at self-salvation that were doomed instead to rest and depend on God's strength. And wonderfully, that's exactly what we see them doing in verse 2. A daily dependence upon the Lord. Be our strength every morning. Attacks tended to happen in the morning. And, they, and they're looking anxiously out the windows at the army as they encamp. Be our strength every morning. And as they turn to trust the Lord, look at the convictions that come from such faith. Verse 3. At the thunder of your voice, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. Verse 5, the Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Now, I would not be surprised if there are many here today and you're feeling great anxiety, uh, fears, concerns, and cares today. You've come anxious to this place. And I want you to see the, the, the key of what you need is in, the, in verse 6. The fear of the Lord is the key to the treasure of peace. It's when you realize how awesome and great God is. When you begin to fear Him in His might and His awesomeness. That you find the great treasure of peace in stressful circumstances because you know someone bigger than yourself is handling things here as they daily depend upon God and look for, to him for strength every morning they, 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 they will see that everything can just change in a moment as I say in a few weeks we're going to examine the closing uh, chapters 38 and 39 and we're going to see that this is exactly what happened to King Hezekiah 
He finally listened to God through listening to Isaiah the prophet and he finally called upon God to save them. And in a moment, overnight, one, you know, one moment they're looking out, the, 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 the armies around them, next minute they wake up, armies are defeated and gone. They're going to see God at work in the real events of their lives. Verse 10, Now will I arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I be lifted up. They're going to see God at work. There's a day coming, they can hardly imagine it now, but there's a day coming when, verse 17, they're going to be, they're going to see God as the king, or is it the Messiah king again? Here's the, here's the tension in the text, but on, there's a day coming when they're going to, in their thoughts they're going to be saying, where was that chief officer who was threatening us? Where's the one who took our money and then came against us? Where's the officer in charge of these towers? Uh, the arrogant people who encamped around them with their obscure speech and strange, incomprehensible, incomprehensible tongue will be no more. There's a day coming where they're going to see that deliverance. This is what God promises that he will do before it happens. And this is what he did. Now that's great if you're experiencing salvation, isn't it? It's pretty terrifying if you're one of his enemies. Such a holy, righteous, just God is, is a terrifying prospect for those who remain unrepentant in their sins. And that's what we see in verse 14 of chapter 33. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. You know, there's a day coming when they see the judgment of God as he wipes out their enemies and they're going to ask this, who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with the everlasting burning? Who can live with such a holy God who can affect such judgments? It is a great question that no one's asking in our culture. How can sinful people live with such a holy God? Now, our only hope is to see this king that God is going to provide, that God has provided, to see the righteous king whose death upon the cross was to take the punishment for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be declared right before him. And when we trust in this Christ, then this God is not fearful, this holy God. He is our comfort. He is our consolation. He is our salvation. He is our King. And knowing this God in that way, and through faith in Christ, you can know God in this way. Through faith in Christ, you can go from being a sinner condemned by God to be one who is forgiven and declared right with God. And you could know in the daily challenges of your life this day that this God is one that you can daily depend upon for grace. He can be the one that will be the strength that you need every morning. He's the one who can be the salvation that we need in our distress. Well, if you've still got some questions, come and ask me afterwards. But I want to encourage you this day. We have seen so much completion of God's word. We have so much more that we can depend upon and have confidence in, knowing that God will bring this everlasting kingdom. He brought his son the first time to establish it. He's sending his son a second time to complete it. 
and in the mess and the difficulties and the struggles of our lives, today you can trust this awesome God if you put your faith in Christ. Let's pray.